Lord, we thank you that you call us to come to you. You stand there with arms open wide, ready to receive us with a look of compassion and grace and love in your eyes, no condemnation. Wherever we are, as broken, as stained, as hurting, you call us to come. So God, I just pray that our hearts would be soft and tender and that we would come, come home to you, Lord. They would hear your voice. We just pray for a special prompting by your spirit today, a personal call by you to come. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. Come as you are. It's a call. It's an invitation to come and lay down your burden, lay down your hurt, your brokenness, your shame, to lay down your life. Come lay it down. And that invitation, you know, it's, it's very appealing to those who are broken and weary those who are humble and hurting. And to those, Jesus was, Jesus is, and Jesus always will be the door to a brand new life, a brand new life. And Jenny, I want to tell you, thank you so much for sharing your stories. Just from the heart, it was personal. And it really is a great testament as to the transforming power of Jesus. And so thank you for that. You know, uh, I think we all recognize, isn't it true, that this call to lay down, it isn't always really well received, right? I mean, I get flashbacks as a young dad with my kids, you know, with the toddler years when they're still in the crib and you're trying to get them to go to bed and they're crawling out and you're like, sweetheart, lay down. Lay down. Lay down. Huh. You know, it's tempting not to break out the duct tape. Just, we just don't like to lay down. We don't like to do that. Our human nature totally resists the call of God on our life, right? We view Jesus with disdain and, and with skepticism. You know, like he's this crutch. He's for weak people. You know, he, he's an annoyance in our agenda and the way that we want to have fun. And sometimes even Jesus is viewed as someone who blocks the progress of the human race. See, the more clarity you get about Jesus, the more divisive he becomes. And today we're going to look at a statement where Jesus proclaims himself to be the door. And he says, you have the choice to either enter through that door or walk away. And that's the purpose of a door, right? It's an entry point. It's a a different area, a, a, a different new way, you know? And in our life, there are many doors. There's doors all around us. There's front door and the back door. There's the garage door. There's rolling doors, the revolving doors, wooden doors, metal doors, 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 right? And when you walk up to a door, what do you do? You knock, You knock, knock. This is where you're supposed to say, who's there? (laughs) Yah. 
Oh, I'm so glad you're excited about this message too. That's great. Yeah. Knock, knock. King Tut. King Tucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> All right, just one more. <laughs> knock, knock. Tank. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. <laughs> now, I honestly don't think that this is what Jesus had in mind when he said, I stand at the door and knock. But it is worth really digging into what is it that Jesus meant when he said, I am the door. And so that's what we're going to look at today. What does it mean that Jesus is the door? So I encourage you to take those message notes out of your program. And if you have a Bible with you, you can turn it to John chapter 10. That's where the story is that we're going to look at today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, please don't fret about that. The main verses will be up here on the screens. And matter of fact, if you don't own a Bible, um, we just as a church want you to know we want to give you one for free. And so we have those in uh, a bookcase right out here in the lobby. And I encourage you to grab one of those on the way out today. So as we get ready to cruise into John chapter 10, we're going to take a real quick peek in the rearview mirror and look back at chapter 9, because in chapter 9, it kind of sets up the whole story as to what's going to happen in chapter 10. And so as we look in chapter 9, here's the deal. Jesus encounters a blind man, and this poor blind man has been reduced to begging just in order to survive in life. And when Jesus meets him, he has a very interesting way of solving this man's problem. Jesus spits in the ground, makes some mud, and puts it in the man's eyes. Here's the mud in your eyes, right? And then he tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And so the man does that. He listens to Jesus. He washes in the pool. And for the first time, he can see he can see, and people around him know, they've seen him for a long time, and they recognize this man can see, they're amazed, they're excited. But the Pharisees, the religious rulers, suddenly turn with disdain, who healed this man on the Sabbath day? And the man said, it was Jesus. And the Pharisees began to deride and put down Jesus, and as the man defends Jesus to them, they throw him out. They excommunicate him from the synagogue. They close the door to worship in his life. And so Jesus goes and he finds this man and he has a conversation with him. And he asks him this question, do you believe in me? And his response is recorded in John 9, 38 to 41. It says this, the man says, yes, Lord, I believe and he worshiped Jesus. Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they can see that they are blind. Some of the Pharisees who were standing nearby asked him, are you saying that we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied. But you remain guilty because you claim to see. See, Jesus said that he was there to give sight and hope and light and spiritual life to those who were willing to admit their need, willing to admit that they could not see. Now, ironically, 
He was the blind man who could see his inner need and through that was healed. While the Pharisees who had physical sight were blinded by their pride so they weren't even able to see that what they needed most, Jesus could provide for them. And so you see these Pharisees, these religious rulers who are meant to be shepherds for God's people. They became blind guides who separated people from God and the life he wanted to have for them. And so Jesus, being keenly aware of this, he begins a discussion about who a true shepherd is and what a true shepherd does. He proclaims himself to be the good shepherd who is the real door to life. And so we're going to dig in and find out how is it that we can enter the door of real life in Jesus. So the first point is this. I recognize the thieves of real life. I recognize the thieves of real life. So we know what a thief is, right? A thief is someone who steals something. And in this case, the religious rulers, what they were stealing was God's glory. You see, they wanted everyone to look at them and admire them for their religious piety and how good they were. To put the spotlight on themselves rather than God. They distracted people from God's care. They were like rodeo clowns, right? Who wave their arms and be able to distract the bull away from the rider. They're a total distraction. Well, if you think about it, you know, you could say that it's safer for a bull to run after a clown because bulls don't like clowns. They taste funny. <laughs> but isn't it true, you see, that there are people, there are people who steal people's hearts away from God. Jesus said this in John 10, 1 to 5. He said, I tell you the truth. The person who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The one who guards the door opens it for him, and the sheep listen to his voice of the shepherd. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he brings all the sheep out, he goes ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. They will run away from him because they don't know his voice. So it's real helpful to kind of look and get a clear understanding of what Jesus is saying here by considering the culture that these people lived in, okay, of the original hearers. And so as you consider, and maybe you've seen pictures, you know, of Israel, it tends to be dry, barren, rocky. It wasn't really conducive to growing a lot of crops, right? That makes sense. And you don't see a ton of trees. There are trees, but not a lot of trees. And so, you know, probably not a lot of jobs when it comes to building homes, making furniture. So it's very common for Israelites to have the job as a shepherd tending sheep. See, the people of that culture were very familiar with shepherds and sheep. Most of us here probably don't have a lot of time that we spend with sheep, right? <laughs> I mean, really. Sheep are some of the most helpless creatures on the entire planet. They spend almost all of their day grazing and wandering with their heads down. Munch, 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 munch. And as followers by nature, it can be very precarious when a sheep has its head down. And if one falls off the cliff, very likely that others will follow right behind them. It's very bad.
See, sheep are injury prone, and they're helpless against predators. If a wolf gets into a sheep pen, the sheep will not defend themselves. I mean, what exactly are they going to do? Try to pull the wool over its eyes? It's just not going to happen. No, what they do is they huddle together, and they become easy prey for predators and easily slaughtered. Sheep are incredibly dependent upon a shepherd. A good shepherd would guide them, bind them up, care for them, protect them. Shepherds would take their flocks out during the day to graze, right? And then at nighttime, when it began to be twilight, they would gather the sheep and put them into a sheep pen where they could be protected from predators who tended to lurk about at night. Now, there were two different types of sheep pens. One was like a community pen that would be on the outskirts of the town, and this would hold several flocks of sheep. So many shepherds would bring their sheep to the pen, and the sheep would all gather together. The gatekeeper would close the gate, secure the gate, watch the gate all night, and then the next morning, the shepherds would come, and they would call out to their sheep, and the sheep would come because they knew the voice of their shepherd. The sheep knew the shepherd's voice because they spent a lot of time together. The shepherd would talk with them, carry them, lead them. A shepherd knew a sheep up and down, inspected them every day for injuries, hurt, disease, things like that. And he knew their weaknesses, their strengths, their flaws. And most times he would give each sheep a specific name depending on their specific characteristics. So for instance, say you have a sheep that had a little bit of a limp. Well, you might name that little sheep Hoppy, right? Or if it had a little sheepish grin, you might call that sheep Smiley. Or if there's a plump little guy, you know, very likely he might be called Lamb Chop. That's the second type of sheep pen as well. And this one would be found further out in the countryside. You see, in good weather, the shepherds could take their sheep way out into the country. And the sheepfold, this one was more, you know, kind of constructed of rocks. They put briars on the top to keep the thieves and animals out. And the shepherd, you see, there'd be a small opening around this rock pen. He'd guide the sheep in at night. And then the shepherd would lay in front of the entrance to literally be the door of protection for the sheep. So Jesus took this very familiar everyday scenario and he used it as an analogy to make a contrast between himself as the good shepherd and the Pharisees whom he described as thieves and robbers. Now, that was a very graphic picture in the minds of those people. You see, because they knew that when a thief came to steal sheep at night, he would jump over the wall, and it'd be very difficult to take the lamb, as you can imagine, back over the wall. So the thief would slit the throat of the sheep, throw its body over the wall to take its wool and eat its meat. The thief would come to steal and destroy the sheep. The Pharisees, you see, were experts at exploiting the weakest and most vulnerable of God's flock. They lacked love, they lacked compassion, they lacked understanding, and they exploited the needy. Now, I imagine in their own eyes, they really felt they were doing good, right? They were protecting society, they were guarding God's laws, but in actuality, instead, what they were doing is they were driving people and separating them away from God. And in Matthew 23... 
Jesus unleashes seven different woes upon these Pharisees. And I think it's very important for all of us to listen to these carefully because they're really the symptoms of a hardened and sickened heart. It says in those woes, one, that they tithed, but they lacked mercy, justice, and faith. They took advantage of widows and tricked them out of their homes. They lived for the praise of others. They concerned themselves with the small things of religion. They burdened people with rules and laws, but they didn't lift a finger to help them. They portrayed themselves as holy, but inside they were full of corruption. They claimed to protect the message of God, while at the same time they sought to kill God's messenger. And so from all of this, this left God's people, his sheep, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus said this in Matthew 23, 27. But sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. The most effective way for us to recognize the thieves who steal life from us is to know the voice of the true shepherd, Jesus. And that's our next point. I seek the source of real life. People look for life in a lot of different ways, right? I mean, people search for it in possessions, position, pleasure, all kinds of pursuits, even performance Religion, but real life can only be found in a person, Jesus Christ. John 10, 6-9 says this. Jesus told the people this story, but they didn't understand what he meant. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. I am the door for the sheep. All the people who came before me were thieves and robbers. The sheep did not listen to them. I am the door, and the person who enters through me will be saved. Jesus said, I am the door, not I am a door. (laughs) Jesus said he's the entrance into eternal life with God, the Father. Only through him can we receive mercy and grace and forgiveness and eternal life. There's no back door, no side door, no trap door. Jesus is the door. In John 14, 6, he makes it very clear. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can enter and come to the Father except through me. This is a penetrating and consistent message of Jesus that we hear echoed again and again in the New Testament. You see, the reason that Jesus was crucified isn't because he healed people. It's not because he fed people. It's not because he told people parables. No, it was when Jesus proclaimed himself to be God and the only way of forgiveness and eternal life. That's when the religious rulers set their hearts to kill him. And when they finally succeeded... And they had Jesus crucified. Then Jesus rose from the dead. To validate 
everything he said was true. And after Jesus then ascended to heaven, his followers continue to proclaim that very same message. In fact, Peter says in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name by which under heaven which, by which we must be saved. As a culture, right? <laughs> I mean, this is appalling. This is so narrow-minded. This is so exclusive. In fact, this is probably the biggest beef that people have against Christianity is its claim to be the only way. Because we want choices, right? We want to have options because that leaves us in control. We want a whole menu of religions, you know, like the old TV show, Let's make a deal where Monty Hall says, you want door number one, door number two, or door number three. We want to believe that all religions lead and point to God. Even when what they believe contradicts one another. Even when some of it doesn't even square with reality. We've just sort of kind of decided as a culture that truth is relative. That we can make up our own truth. We're convinced that we're our own gods. And we get to decide what's true for us. And what's true for us is what works for us. It's all about us. Now I want to pause for a second. And even if you're not a Jesus follower, and I'm so glad you're here. Maybe someone invited you today. Or maybe you're just on a search. But I really want you to pause for a moment and just think carefully and logically about this. Can't you see how every person determining their own truth based upon how it satisfies them? Where does that lead us? The culture is convinced to tell you that that is the path to peace, to unity, to joy, to harmony. Imagine. Can't you see it? Self-preoccupation. Self-interest, self-focus, self-exaltation leads to pride. It leads to conflict. It leads to isolation. That is the opposite of love. It's what the Bible calls sin. And isn't that what we see in the world? I mean, isn't that what really we see in front of us? That the root of conflict and murder and abuse and hatred and selfishness is sin. And sin is the very reason that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Because only Jesus Christ can truly, completely, and eternally rid you of your sin. Every other religion, when you dissect and get in there and really see what it's all about, it's all based on personal effort to work your way to nirvana. I mean, and you can work your tail off. You can try to be a really good person. But ultimately, if you can't rid yourself of your sin, you will never be able to stand before a holy God. Only Jesus Christ offers you the solution for sin. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the holy sacrifice without sin 
died in your place to pay for your sin to bring you to God. Jesus is eternal. Therefore, his sacrifice is eternal. Jesus is perfect. He's the only perfect sacrifice. He's the only one who could fill the perfect law of God. He's the only one who conquered death forever. He's the only mediator between God and man because he's God who became man, who identifies and understands and has compassion for us and heals us. He is the creator who became the created to save us. Jesus is not a religion. He's not a philosophy. He's not some man-made scheme for enlightenment. No. Jesus. He is veiled in flesh. The Godhead seed. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus died so that you can be saved from sin and death. He's the door. Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. Yes, Jesus made an incredibly exclusive claim to be the only way to God. He claimed to be God. And no other religion has been able in any way to take that claim and to back it up. But Jesus Christ rose from the dead to validate his words were truth. It is an exclusive claim, but it also is the most inclusive claim. Because you see in Acts 13, 39, it says that through Jesus Christ, everyone, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Freedom from sin is available Everyone, everyone who believes is set free. And it's not based on you trying to be good enough on your own personal deeds and works. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, validated by his resurrection, sealed by the Holy Spirit. And it's entirely accessible. But it's not automatic. It's something that we must believe and also We must receive. And that's our next point. I walk in the abundance of real life. I walk in the abundance of real life. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you become a new person. (laughs) A new creation. You're born into the family of God where you once were cut off from God by your sin. Now you are God's child You're in Christ. Colossians says he is your life. So John 10, 9 to 10 says this. Jesus said, I'm the door. And the person who enters through me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I came to give life in all its fullness. Jesus says, the person who enters through me, who passes through me, will be saved. Mark that, underline that, circle that, saved. You see, salvation sets us free from the penalty of sin and death and leads us to a full and abundant life in Jesus, secure, safe in the sheepfold. And we have nothing to fear. 
right? We have nothing to fear. For what can separate us from God's love? Can death, life, angels, principalities, things present or things to come? No, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are safe and secure in the Savior, our shepherd's hands. 1 John 5, 11 and 12 says this. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. And whoever does not have God's son does not have life. Now, for many of us, you know, we walk into the door. But we kind of stand there in the entryway and we look around. Oh, look at all the nice things that Jesus has given us. But don't we always walk in and enjoy and live in the abundance? Our lives too mu- look too much like they did before we even met Jesus. What Jesus describes as abundant life is a life that we can never experience apart from him. See, we're forgiven and we're healed and sealed. And we enter through the door and we go in and out to find pasture, he says, which is this beautiful picture of safety and freedom of new life where we go out into the world, we're safe in him and go out into the world safe as well in the pasture with him who takes care of all of our needs. Philippians 4.19 says, and this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Jesus Christ. God takes care of all of our needs. He tells me to trust him, cast my cares on him, consider it all things joy in him, and believe that he will supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory. He provides much more than I can ever ask or think or imagine. Ephesians 3.20 says this, Now all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we may ask or think. The Bible assures us as well that we've received all things pertaining to life and godliness. We are fed through his Holy Spirit within us. (laughs) We are given his word, his Bible, where we hear Jesus' life through his living word. We hear his voice, a voice that nurtures, sustains, encourages us, and gives us hope. And it's through God's word that we are filled with the spirit and we enjoy the fruits of this spirit, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Jesus Christ is the door to a life of relationship with God, a relationship that carries us not only through this life, but walks with us through the door of death and into eternity with him. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says this. This is what the scriptures mean when they say, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I love that song, I Can Only Imagine. Have you heard that song? And it kind of grapples with the idea of what it might be like to be in heaven. This scripture says that we can't even begin to imagine. Our minds will be blown. Our wildest dreams will come true in heaven because we are with God. 
on earth here, you know, we're in this process of, of growing and learning and maturing in faith, but also really, you know, about failing and falling and having to get back up again and learning and enduring. Right now in this world, we see through a glass dimly. But one day we will see him face to face. And we will know him fully as we are fully known. We'll no longer struggle with sin and shame and with doubt. Heaven will be the ultimate fulfillment of this abundant life that God has promised to us. So now as we land this plane, I encourage you to fasten your tray tables, to put your seats in an upright position. Your flight attendants will come by so that you can discard anything that is stealing life from your soul. I encourage you, really, to recognize the life thieves in your life and to get rid of them. And as we approach our final destination, I encourage you to check to make sure that you have exactly what you need to get there. And as the door opens, well, you get to decide if you're going to go through it. And I really hope that you choose to enter the door. Thanks for flying with us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're so grateful. You're so good, so kind. You shine, shine. Thank you that you are so willing to receive us. So Lord, we come. We come with open arms. God, I remember so well many years ago being presented with a message like this and my heart just pulling. I could tell something was going on and I resisted so hard. I fought God, against you. Lord, there's so many valuable things we can learn from the song to lay it down. And like Jenny said, it's when we surrender that we choose and find great victory and ultimate eternal life. And so, Lord, we come to you. We confess, God, forgive me. My life really is a mess if I admit it. I've tried so hard to control it, to direct it, and it just... It's in shambles. I need you. I pray that you forgive me, that you be my shepherd. You guide me. You be the door. I walk through that door. I receive you as my Savior. God, show me the new life that you promised. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.